Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. So hi, I don't have a microphone on, but that's okay. I'm good at being loud. Welcome. Uh, For those of you who I have not met yet, my name is Becca. I'm uh, the other half of Dave, who is normally here tonight, but he is in ice-covered Dallas, Texas. Uh, Yeah. Uh, He has his seminary small group gets together once a year, and they try to choose locations that are warmer than here. And uh, that didn't work for them this year. Um, But they all made it, fortunately, but he's having a good time with them. And so... Uh, He has invited our new friend Alex Massad here to teach tonight, and I thought, since Alex is kind of new to this community, I figured I'd come and uh, introduce him to you all, but I know you will love him immediately as uh, we have enjoyed getting to know him and his family as well. Alex is a professor at Wheaton University? College. College? Oh, college. I was giving it the rank of university. I was like, surely they've made it. He's an assistant professor. That matters to you all, right? To know that (laughs) differentiation, it does not matter. The fact that he has a job at Wheaton, I think that's pretty good. Um, And uh, has his PhD from Fuller Seminary. He specializes uh, mostly in world religions, though has uh, great knowledge that he can bring to teach us on our scriptures today, especially remembering that um, we were talking about this in our small group, right? Uh, the, New, the Old Testament was not written with us in mind. You know, with the, the Christian lens that we bring to it and we learn from it is wonderful, but it's really helpful to learn uh, about the context in which it was written and its intended purpose in its context. So Alex can bring great insight to that as well. Um, I think I'm right about this. You all can correct me if I'm wrong. The way that Alex and his family, his, his wife Kelly and his two lovely daughters as well, came here to Knox was um, mm. because of Twitter. I believe that's where it finds its roots, that Dave uh, Dave is active on Twitter, and he he uses it primarily as a a tool for theological conversation. Other theologians are there, some people will pose questions, and conversations will happen on Twitter. And it was in that context, I think, that he did share that we had taken the call here, where there's somebody on the Wheaton faculty with whom he had had theological conversation. I don't think they've ever met in person. Uh, but when Alex and his family showed up and were looking for a church, she pointed him in this dir- direction because she knew that Dave was here. So I think that may be a first in the world of Twitter accomplishing a good deed in the world. We can thank Twitter for Alex and his family being here. Um, so um, I will let Alex take it from here. I'm just going to enjoy listening and learning as well. Um, but wanted to make sure that you knew who this wonderful person was who was teaching you tonight. Thank you, Becca. Um, yeah, so my name is Alexander Massad. Uh, I'm assistant professor of world religions at Wheaton College. What I do is called comparative theology. So my interest is in thinking deeply about questions within the Christian tradition through the lens of another religious tradition. So for example, one of the burning questions I had was, how do we as Christians understand the heritage of the mystical church fathers. This is something I, I write about. And looking at how mysticism exists in Islam and Judaism helps gives us insight into the deep, rich history of our own tradition that we've kind of missed out upon. Um, and so those are the kind of questions I ask and the things I reflect on. And um, I actually, last semester, just taught a class on the Old Testament through a Jewish, Muslim, and Christian lens. So reading the the Old Testament through the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition, Christian tradition, and gaining new insights 
on comparing and contrasting actually kind of helps draw out some things we might quickly overlook because we're just so used to it by reading through our own lens. So that's kind of what I do. Um, Dave asked me here tonight to talk about the fall. I am going to talk about the fall, but I'm also going to talk about some other things as well. I like to read, especially the early narratives of scripture, symphonically. What I mean by that is the early church fathers, if you read them, they're all over the place. They're quoting Genesis, they're quoting Psalms, they're quoting the songs, they're quoting Kings. They're, they're just quoting things from all over the place, which is very different than how kind of 20th century writers will talk about our faith. We'll kind of just walk straight through. And the best analogy that, that I like, it's like when you read a church father, it's like listening to an orchestra. You sit back and you hear the total sound that all the trumpets and the trombones and the timpanis and the violins, and they make a glorious sound. And the church fathers in reading scripture, they wanted to hear the glorious sound of scripture. If I step back, what is the total sound that I'm hearing? Rather than just focusing on, okay, what is the trumpet doing? Okay, what is the timpani? No one listens to the timpani. But if you were, I was a percussionist, so timpani, timpani doing. Um, so that's, there is value in that. I also think there's value in stepping back and hearing the whole narrative. So that's something I'm going to do today in reading through Genesis 3. It's not walking through kind of a pinpoint perspective, but rather stepping back and asking, what is Genesis 3 in light of the symphony of Scripture? So that's kind of the perspective I'm going to take. So I'm going to start with a, throwing out some ideas, kind of a, a re-reading of Genesis 3 through this symphonic lens, and then we'll open up for discussion. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman! whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. Lord God 
said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you among all animals, among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. You will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You were dust. And to dust... You shall return. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, thank you for the time we get to spend this evening contemplating your scriptures. The manifold truth that is within them, Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and minds, unstop our ears, that you may speak to us anew, that the words that I say may align with your truth and that you may be glorified and we might flourish. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, I wanted to start with a painting by Chagall. If you have gone to the Art Institute in Chicago, there is a lot of Chagall. Um, so, Mark Chagall was a Russian Jew who fled uh, Tsarist Russia during one of the pogroms, this is the persecution of the Jews under Tsarist Russia, came to the United States and was a very prolific and very famous artist. But his art, I thought was very interesting, and I'm going to come back to it at the end, but the reason I showed this is because it's in stark difference to other artists' renditions of Adam and Eve being exiled from the garden. Most of the renditions, when you see them, Adam and Eve are leaving into a desolate, barren land, into a desert. They are, you, their nakedness is a focus of the painting. But in this painting, that is not the case. They're leaving a green land and going to a green land. The focus of the painting is not Adam and Eve. The focus of the painting, in fact, is the garden itself and the guardians of the garden. And this spiritual figure that kind of inhabits that space. Because there's the angel up top with the flaming sword and the cherubim kind of underneath there. And Adam and Eve are almost like spirits fleeing. And I like this image of Adam and Eve as almost spirit-like. Because it's this idea that in the fall, a piece of humanity was lost. But in the redemption, humanity is regained. In the fall, they actually became less human. What I mean by that is they became less what God intended humanity to be, and therefore less of the goal of humanity. But in redemption, we become more into the fullness of humanity, more into the fullness of what God intended us to be. And so they went from the fullness of humanity to these kind of ephemeral spirits out in the wilderness, yes, but it is not a barren desert wilderness. And this is something I'll talk about as well, is that the wilderness today is not necessarily a barren desert. Um, 
But I kind of wanted to start with this. Just, I like art. I think it provides an interesting visual, and it can do things that we can't necessarily say in words. Um, so I want to go over in the narrative, and I want to look at, in this narrative, what exactly has fallen? So we talk about the fall, capital T, capital F, the fall. So I want to walk through and say, okay, in this narrative, what in fact did fall? So we have the, this phrase that the fruit is desirable for gaining wisdom. So what, the first thing that's broken is the relationship between human and divine. In that humans wanted to become divine-like. We wanted to become like God and gaining wisdom like God. So the first thing that is fractured, the first thing that has fallen in this moment is the proper relationship between humans and God, where we, represented here in Adam and Eve, desired to transcend our human state and to wrestle what is properly God's and take it for our own. It is a selfish act of grasping and controlling. So the first act of brokenness is the brokenness of relationships. The second act that I see is in this phrase, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They were naked before. But their, their actual physical states had not changed before eating from the fruit to after eating from the fruit. So the question then we must ask is what did change? It seems their knowledge and their understanding changed. In other words, the filter by which they see the world has changed. I see in this a representation of us taking grasp of our knowledge idolatrously. In other words, we claim that we have knowledge and this knowledge gives us power to understand and mold the world as we see fit. That is a byproduct of the first fall, the misordered relationship between God and us. It is not our job to order the world as we see fit. It is God's job, and our job is to be partakers of that. But this knowledge is now seeing the world and saying, you're naked. This is the category I've put you into. I've, uh, now, now I understand, and this is something that I can put the world in, and therefore I'm making a judgment upon it, and therefore let us hide in our shame. So the second thing I see broken is the, the attempt to leverage our human knowledge to refilter the world in ways that we can then manage and control, which is a byproduct of the first. So then they hid from the Lord, and this is shame. This is, some, this is a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture. The coming before the Lord God and the fear of the Lord. And if you look at, for example, Moses was reading this story with Sophia last night and it's kind of cute. In her story, Moses has his head to the ground, but he keeps one eye looking at God. He has, the picture has like an eye looking up. It's really cute. But, and Sophia was like, well, why is he afraid? And we kind of had to walk through that. Yes, God is loving. God is also terrifying. Moses could not handle the glory of the Lord. The amount of God Moses could handle was God's back hidden while he was hidden in a crack in, a, in, the, in the stones. And even then, when he saw God, his face shone so brightly, the Israelites couldn't handle it and asked him to cover his face. 
The, the awesomeness of God, the overwhelming awesomeness of God becomes terrifying when we are broken in relationship. This awesomeness is supposed to be ecstatic. It's supposed to lift us up into another kind of heightened form of love with God. But instead of being deeper love, it becomes terrifying. And so that first brokenness of relationship leads to the brokenness of us grasping for knowledge and trying to order the world as we see fit. Then breaks the way that we even see God because now we see the divine as terrifying rather than deep love. So to the woman, he says, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. This is the uh, NRSV, so it's a little bit different. I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. A lot of things we can talk about, and we can get that in the question part. But I'm going to stick with my main theme of what is broken. What is broken here are first relationships. The relationship between Adam and Eve is broken. This idea, this, this, this phrase of your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What's interesting is this is part of the curse. The curse is this, your desire will be for him and the ruling over the other. That is part of the curse. So that is not part of an intended order. In other words, the relationship was broken. The relationship that existed before doesn't exist after. This is a new type of relationship. So there's something broken in this relationship. And now the increase of humanity, which was desired by God, will now come through pain. And this is going to be echoed with the curse that we see with Adam as well. The plan that God has for his creation will still come to pass, but now it will come in a form that is corroded. Birth will be painful. Birth will be deadly. This is a broken form of what birth should be. God always intended for Adam and Eve to fill the earth. But not in this way. So these are the two things I see broken. And to the man, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you are taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. So here we get the entry into the discussion of death. This is something I'll come back when we look at Romans and 1 Corinthians. Right? But from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. Okay, now this is new. When Adam was first created, it was not to dust you shall return. Now he will devolve. He will cease to exist. His body is now no longer immortal. It is mortal. And it can break. He's still going to work. And if you remember from Genesis chapter 1, God looks at Adam and Eve and says, all of the fruits and all of the plants and all of the things that have seeds, I give to you as food. He still has them for food. He still has these things for food. But now, instead of flourishing from the ground, 
he will have to toil for them. And even then, the food it produces is filled with thistles and thorns. So the intention of the original creation is now again corroded and corrupted. The fruit is there, the food is there, the work is there, but now it is corroded. It is corrupted because of sin. So his work is always incomplete. It cannot be fulfilled. So I'm going to take a step back. So this is, we look at Genesis. I'm going to take a step back and see where does this fit in kind of the larger view of Scripture. So I'm going to look at how Genesis is read by writers of the New Testament, particularly Paul, our Apostle Paul. And so in Romans, and I believe this was in our reading from this past week. So Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not uh, charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. So what's interesting here is death, sorry, sin leads to death, but sin is not death. So there is a distinction between what sin is and what death is. So scripture is giving us two categories to think about. Sin and death. And I think frequently we put them together. And that's not incorrect to put them together, but they are not the same thing, at least according to the view of Romans. Neither is sin the law. So now we have three categories. We have sin, death, and law. Now let's look at another writing from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at 51. Look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what I find interesting here is the counterpart to death is change. The word is not life. The word is change. We will not die, but, so after but, you're expecting, okay, the opposite of die. We will not die, but we will be changed. That's interesting. What What will we be changed into? Well, we actually don't get past death, we, we die, but in this death, we actually have victory over death. 
So the victory over death is death. A friend of mine, actually the same friend who told me about Knox, said that um, in her prayers in the morning, she reminds herself that she's going to die. And it's actually very helpful for her to realize our mortality and to realize that the things of this world are not always going to be here or for us or to grasp and that they are God's. And I was thinking about that when I was contemplating this scripture passage is that in contemplating death, we are actually contemplating victory. Because what is the victory that we have right now over death? It is death. Because in death is victory. Because in that moment, there is transformation. There's transformation from the ephemeral, lesser human, post-fall human person that becomes dust into the immortal, imperishable human person that is more human, which God originally intended as we were before the fall. So in this kind of interesting way, death defeats herself. And is that not the case of Christ on the cross? Christ's death on the cross defeats death. Death defeats death. And we who are in Christ participate in the death that defeats death. What is not mentioned here, which I think is interesting, is the things of the fall that are overcome are sin and death and the law which highlights it, but not work. We don't see anywhere here that there's a problem with work. But in the curse, there was a lot of talk about work. A lot of talk about childbirth and a lot of talk about toiling the soil. But what's highlighted here is the, the dust and death part. Where's the work part? Well, it's because work's not a problem. We're still called to work. And this is something that is actually rooted before the fall. So let's take stock of what has happened. There is broken human relationships. We have shame. There are broken relationships between humans. There is pain in the spread of humanity. There is death. There is pain in our work. Our work is always incomplete. Sin leads to death, but it is not death. Sin is not the law. But rather, the law highlights sin, which leads to death. But what is not said is that work is evil. What is not said is that our work and our labor is an inherent result of the fall. What is not said is that creation has fallen or is evil. And what is not said is that humans, it is not said, there's too many negatives, it is not said that humans no longer have dominion. Humans still have dominion. The charge that God gave in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was not stripped away in the fall. That's still there. Because that's not part of the curse. The curse is the work I charged you with will be corrupted. But you are still charged with the work I gave you originally. So this is what we get to in Reformed theology we call the cultural mandate. Work, from this Reformed theological perspective, is not fallen. 
doing work is not a result of sin. Now, work may suck. That's the thorns and the thistles, and that, that's that part. <laughs> but the actual act of working is an outworking of a human doing what God does, which is creating, which is a type of work. So work by itself is not fallen, and therefore the things that we create are not inherently fallen. Culture is something we create. We create culture. From this lens, culture is not inherently fallen. It's corrupted, but it is not inherently bad. So this is what we call the cultural mandate, which we get from the Genesis narrative. So this is why in reading Genesis 3, I keep alluding back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's a, I put on the bottom there, I don't know if the slides go up, but if the slides do go up and you have access to them, I put a citation of authors that if you're interested, you could look at and, and read on this cultural mandate, reform theology, etc. Um, so the cultural mandate says that the created order needs development. That's why I like that picture by Chagall, because they're going from a green wilderness to a green wilderness. The wilderness still needs developing. But even more so now because there are thorns and thistles that we need to work. And even, even in the act of trimming the thorns and thistles, we make thorns, more thorns and thistles because our work is always going to be incomplete. But the work that we do is still a product of the divine work that God charged us with before the fall. It is still connected to that divine charge that is given to us as humans. So we are co-creators of God. The act of work is a divine act. When God rests, that term rest does not mean laying down or sleeping. It does not mean the cessation of doing things. It means doing something else that is not work. So they're still doing something else. So if you look at like a lexa, Hebrew lexicon and it tells you this word in Hebrew appears in these other places in the Bible, it can kind of give you a, a nice way of comparing what this word means in other places. If you look at the word that is used for rest for God, you see in other places it's not static. It's still moving. It's still dynamic. It's still creative. Work essentially is creativity. It is making things. Going and walking on, well, I was going to say on a beach, but that's because I came from Southern California. Um, when it's warm outside, <laughs> walking outside <laughs> is a creative act. That is a creative act. You are going and you are engaging with the created order. There is a creativity that is happening there. When you are cooking food, that is a creative act. When you are creating a business, that is a creative act. When you fly a plane, that is a creative act. These are all acts of creation, and they are co-creations with God. So even though the fall introduced sin, which corrupts creation, creation still is good because we are co-creating with God. And as Christians, that is our charge. Our charge is to co-create with God for the kingdom in a way that expands and moves out into the world, being led by the Holy Spirit before us. 
Not in a way where I march in and say, I know what you should do, let me tell you. No, because in the fall, that was the sin of knowledge. I know what you should do, let me tell you that. Mm -mm. Instead, it is repairing the broken relationship, which is, Lord, you lead. Let me see how I change in light of your spirit moving, and let me come alongside the work you are doing before me. And that we are co-creators. That is the work we are called to do. So this is not totally my idea. This comes from these two guys. This guy with the glasses is Herman Bovink. The guy down the right is Abraham Kuyper. And I told Dave I'd be talking about these people. So there you go. Um, these are Reformed theologians from the Netherlands from the late 18th century to the early 19th century. Uh, they worked on something called common grace. Now, you may have heard the term common grace thrown around, but I'm going to kind of reiterate it and maybe give a new definition for you. So all grace comes from God. Right? There's no grace that doesn't come from God. But the question is, is there a difference between the grace that people who are in Christ receive and the grace that people who are not in Christ receive, if all people receive grace? And so they kind of offered, and this is a big through line in Reformed theology, yeah, there is. So common grace is not the same as saving grace. Just because you get grace doesn't mean you're saved. Yes, we do say you are saved by grace through faith. Grace is in there. But Jesus also tells us not everybody who knocks will be let in. Not everybody who thinks they're invited to the party is actually invited to the party. So we also have to take that into account. So what does it mean? So common grace is the Spirit's work in humanity, restraining sin, giving fallen humanity, and gifting fallen humanity with the moral, epistemic, or knowledge, and living good to enjoy the goal of redemption in Christ. In other words, common grace is the grace that all people receive, the ability to love, the ability to still create. Even if you're not a Christian, you are still creators. You are still creating. The act that you are doing is an impulse of the image of God within you. You can't not create. That's part of what it means to be human. The goal of that is to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, yes. But there is still grace there. There are still things that we as Christians come alongside and partner with and say, yes, I affirm that working out of grace over there and over there. And yeah, it may not be part of the church. They might not even be Christian. But I see what God is doing there. And in Christ, I see the fulfillment of what that is aimed at. Let me come alongside and make it even better. So, this is what we call the image of God, or the Imago Dei. That you, I, every single human person bears this image. And one aspect of the image is work. The beautiful, creative, glory-giving, human-flourishing aspect of work that we have in our lives. And in Reformed theology, when we take common grace, the culture mandates, we put it together with the redemption of Jesus Christ, this is what we call the creation mandate. So we have the culture mandate, which says go out and create culture. But if you take, culture is just one little piece of creation. So what the creation mandate does is it steps back and looks at creation as a whole. 
I would urge you to go back and look at the end of Genesis 1 right before 2 where God says the word very good. Look at what does God actually say is very good. It is the totality of everything that is created. It's not just Adam and Eve. It says he saw Adam and Eve and then lists all the stuff that God creates. At the end of that, that's very good. So the whole of creation is what God calls very good. The system that God created is the thing that is very good. And that is the total system that we are called to partake in. Because it is still good. It is corroded. It is disappeared. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Creation is corroded. It is corrupted, yes. But it is not dead. I think many times when we talk about sin, we talk about things that have fallen, we fall into a binary, either it's in Christ or it's dead. I do not see that in Scripture. It's either being redeemed in Christ or falling further into corruption. But it's not alive or dead. It's a movement. More redeemed in Christ, more corrupted in sin. And that is where we're called to participate in. Based on the goodness of creation, the cultural mandate, the sustaining power of common grace, and Christ's redemption of humanity and creation, Kyperians, or the people who follow this strain of Reformed thought, I am one of them, hold that we are called to culturally engage all spheres of life. Each cultural sphere has its place in God's plan for creation directly under the divine rule. There's a, a common saying amongst the people who study this and Kuiper says this. He says, when Christ looks over all creation, he says, there is not one square inch over which Christ does not cry out mine. There is not one square inch of creation that does not belong to Christ. It all belongs to Christ. Economics, politics, culture, the arts, soccer games, all belong to Christ. Your chairs belong to Christ. This building belongs to Christ. This speaker right here in my ear belongs to Christ. It does. <laughs> it's, it's, on the one hand, it's kind of silly. On the other hand, it's kind of great to think about all things. It's actually quite freeing. You don't have to silo your life. In fact, we should be impelled to open up outwards and take the stuff that happens on Sunday and just continue it. Why stop? Christ doesn't just own the church. Christ owns the street. And that Trader Joe's down there. Why not a shop for Christ? This is not like a, I'm not like putting a Jesusification of consumerism. That's not what I mean. <laughs> it's for the podcast. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> God cares deeply about culture. And its development so deeply that the divine desired that human beings engage in cultural activity was a central motive for God creating the world. If you look at Revelations, at the very end, all people from all tribes and all tongues, read into that, all cultures, are at the throne worshiping God. God, in that image, redeems all cultures to God's self. So culture in its distinct forms will be redeemed. 
God desires to bring that all in. It will not be destroyed. It will be brought in and be fulfilled in God. I take lots of encouragement to this in being able to be free to go and say, I can then engage in aspects of the world that may be on the face of it seem like, oh, that's, that's not Christian. Was, that, was the artist a Christian? Oh, you too? Mm, that's kind of on the fence. I'm not sure about that one. You know, like just whatever music. If it's God-glorifying, great. I can listen, like one of my favorite artists is a Muslim rapper from Chicago. Why do I like him? Because he talks about the plight of the poor. Jesus cared a lot about the plight of the poor. I see Christ working out in that music. I would love to see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, yes. But I can still affirm what is happening there in Christ. And glorify God because of that. And that is the state that I read humanity in after the fall. So when we think about the fall, it is not just the narrative of sin and death and everything is terrible. It is the narrative of the human race still co-working with God in ways that are painful, yearning for a new life in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you very much. I'm here for questions. Can you talk about how the uh, all cultural spheres has its own place in God's plan? Mm -hmm. And some of the devotionals I read sometimes is that, you know, no, no prayer that you bring before God is too small. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I'm having a bad time at work and I'm really getting frustrated and I get up and I walk away and if I think of it, I say, God, you know, I can't get this software test to run. Can you help me figure out what's going on? And sometimes 10 minutes later, boom, there it is, or the next day. So he even cares about my stupid, trivial, little failing <laughs> test case. Yeah, God cares about computer programming. Absolutely. God cares about chat GPT, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, God cares about that. God, I, I think, what does it mean to bring computer programming to human flourishing, right? How does that a part of the kingdom and God's intention that humans flourish because of what we create? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is something I, I have a student who's a business major and we talk often because he's trying to struggle between being a missionary and being a business major. And I tell him, well, they, they're not mutually exclusive, right? It is very important to have Christians and the CEOs, because what does it mean to have workplaces with human flourishing? Where a person goes, and in their work, they are flourishing. They're not exploited, they're not taken advantage of, they're not put down, da 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 but a business that uplifts people. We need those. So you mentioned the fall introduced sin, which corrupted creation. Mm -hmm. So is there no hope that creation, well, will creation always be corrupt? Mm -hmm. While we're here to help develop, mm -hmm. are we ever going to make it to the point where it's, it's better than, than it is today? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is corruption always going to be there? It's mm -hmm. inevitable. Mm -hmm. Throw up the hands. No matter what we do, <laughs> it's corrupt. That's kind of where I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. is, I'm sure that's not, that's not your point, right? <laughs> Could you explain that further? No, and I, you're putting your finger on an important tension. 
in, in Christianity. So if the world is corrupt and fallen, is there a point in doing things in the world? I mean, it's, there's been a very strong strain in Christianity of just leaving it all. Go to the mountains, become a hermit, or join a monastery, or there was that book, The Benedictine Option. Just remove yourself from society. That's a gross summarization of it. It's more complex than that. But right. should we just remove ourselves from, from society and kind of try to do our best here? Because out there is bad. Um, I think there are two things, at least from this reading, that I would encourage a Christian to think about. Um, one is the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection is transformative for all of creation, not just individual people. Um, so the book of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and we believe the Word was Jesus Christ. So in the beginning was Christ, right? in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through the Word. So in the beginning was Christ, and all things were made through Christ, in Christ and for Christ. If that's the case, then when Christ comes incarnate in the person of Jesus, it's not just a human being that happened to live in the Middle East in the first century that happened to be male. It is the entirety of all of creation and all of humanity and all things that came into the form of flesh. And in the resurrection, that entirety was redeemed. So redemption is not something that is just out there that is applied to you, but rather it is this grand cosmic narrative that Christ who came down brought all of creation into himself and redeemed it. That is now. And if we, if we look at creation and say, this is not something worthy of my time, then I think we are downplaying the power of the resurrection. So my first encouragement would be maybe expanding our appreciation of the power of the resurrection. Um, second would be expanding our appreciation for how God sees humans or how God intended for humans to be. Let me put it that way. How God intended for humans to be and how we still are. We were created to work. And the fall made work corrupted, but that work is still something good, still something that we should do. Jesus went out and the apostles after them, after him, and took care of the sick and the poor and the needy. And I think of there's a Christian, early Christian father, Ephraim the Syrian. He died because he was taking care of people from the plague because everyone had left the city, but he stayed. Why? Because as a Christian, he was going to help the sick and the poor and the dying. I think that is a very powerful narrative, is when Christians, because of Christ, help the needy and the poor, people see the power of the gospel. And our call to engage in culture is a call to bring the power of the gospel to the, the needy, the sick, the poor, but also to the culture in which everybody lives. Um, so I think we also 
underappreciate the power of the gospel and our calling as human co-workers with God. So that the two things I would encourage is one, a deeper appreciation of the power of the resurrection and two, a deeper appreciation for our role in bringing the gospel power to bear in the redemption, the actual redemption act in this world. It will be fulfilled ultimately, yes, in the new heavens and the new earth, yes. Um, but that is the hope that we have, which I think is quite exciting. Thanks for the question. And Jesus talks a lot about what the kingdom of heaven is, and he doesn't say that the, the earth is going to blow up and disappear and we're all going to go up into the clouds and play harps all day. <laughs> it's still going to be earth. It's just going to be the earth the way it was originally intended. Yeah, I mean, Revelation, it's the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what you were just saying, isn't that all that God is asking of us? Isn't that our goal on, on earth, is to take care of the sick and the poor? I think that is definitely a very important goal that we have, is to take care of the sick and the poor. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's especially because, so like, this is something, I have a friend of mine, he works with uh, students who are disabled high school and under in, in Lebanon, because there aren't a lot of government support for these students. Um, and it's very tragic. I mean, even, even here in the US, we could always use more support <laughs> for people who have learning disabilities or whatever other disabilities that they have. Um, and so to what, how are Christians living in those spaces? And I think that's where people see the power of the gospel. Because anybody, as, as Christ said, you could be nice to your neighbor. That's, everyone does that. <laughs> but love your enemy. Take care of those, take care of the people that it's hard to take care of. It's easy to take care of people that have the financial means to take care of themselves. It's hard to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. So I feel like if this came up in our small group uh, and uh, he asked it before Dave was there, so I said, uh, you're gonna have to wait till Dave shows up. <laughs> Asking questions about how the story of the, the, the fall related to the theological concept of total depravity. Uh -huh. And I feel like what I hear you saying about kind of the moving toward redemption in Christ and moving toward corruption, you know, more corruption and sin sounds different. Mm -hmm very different than the theological concept of total depravity, which just means sin made everything bad. So can you, for this group and for anyone listening, <laughs> kind of explain what, shorthand, you know, sure. what, what is the concept of total depravity that I feel like a lot of us have heard that word, but we don't always know what it means, or that phrase, and then how is what you are proposing different from that? Sure. So first start with what, at least I think, total depravity gets stereotyped as, and then what total depravity, what I think more properly means. So total depravity, that term usually is lumped with Calvinism, which is an, a theological kind of bedrock for our reformed tradition. Now, Calvin did not teach total depravity. The term total depravity comes from the five points of Calvinism, or TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I'm not going to get to the other ones, just total depravity. Now, it was not as if a bunch of Calvinists sat around and said, hmm, 
You know what would make a great acronym? TULIP. Let's start working out some words. Rather, there was a teacher, Arminian, who or Armin well, the followers of Arminius taught Arminianism. And he had five points. So Arminius put out five points challenging the dominant Calvinist theology. In response, the Calvinists made five points. The irony is that in their response, the Calvinists assumed the Arminian argument and actually made it for them by taking a harder position. Because the first Arminian argument is the opposite of total depravity, which is people are generally good. So they're like, you can't say that. People are totally, so in the word total means all-encompassing, totally depraved. Now, that's not what Calvin taught. That was a response to someone who was teaching a doctrine that didn't fit with what the church was teaching. But you could have lots of responses to that. You don't necessarily have to say total in that response. So you can still be a Calvinist and work in Calvin, Reformed tradition, and not go full-blown total depravity. I rather like St. Augustine's... Now, he doesn't use the image of a flashlight because he doesn't have a flashlight. But I take St. Augustine and make it modern. So St. Augustine's metaphor is that our hearts... Or he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are, desire God. And they are restless until they rest in God. The image that always came to my mind was... I'm holding a flashlight, right? So let's say I'm holding a flashlight and I want to illuminate that exit sign back there. Now, the exit sign, for the sake of this rough metaphor, is God. The flashlight is my desire. My desire is to reach God. Now, before the fall, great, my flashlight is reaching God. What sin does is it comes and it puts a mirror. So my desire is still going, but now it's being refracted somewhere else. So I still love, but now my love is pointed somewhere else. It becomes self-love or becomes abusive love or becomes some other type of corroded love that is not divine. What does Christ do but start making holes in that mirror? And the more holes that are in the mirror, the more my desires attain their goal, which is God. So the corruption, rather, is the refraction of our desires. In that sense, yeah, it is total in a sense that it has gone a different direction, but it's not dead. And I think inappropriately, we assume total depravity just means everything you ever do at every moment is evil. Except for common grace, which then God kind of is like, okay, we're just going to make sure the world still exists and you can't go completely, you know, terrible. I don't see that in Calvin, <laughs> and I think you can still be Calvinist and Reformed and not hold to capital. It's not even a capital. It's like bigger than a capital. Massive T, total depravity. That was... Well, I've just been in a master class, and I'm here <laughs> you're mind blown here, um, yeah. for, for sharing your knowledge, yeah, and, and it's been a long time since I've been in a classroom with an assistant professor of anything, and uh, yeah, master class. Thank you. Hopefully, like, it made sense. Uh, I'm going to go oh, home and yeah. do a little homework. So okay. <laughs> and, uh, I'll get back to you. going to write a book. Okay. <laughs> There's no homework. I'm not assigning a paper. It's okay. <laughs> so it, the question I'm hearing you asking is, 
what do, essentially what does it mean when we actually put it on the ground to do some of these things like taking care of the poor? Does it mean addressing the systems that create poverty? Or does it mean immediately addressing the immediate poor right there? Which is a great question. And this is this is something where I think it's helpful to take as Christians to take a step back and say, okay, what do Christians around the world do? Right? Because there are more Christians in not in America. <laughs> so what do Christians not in Europe and America do who are doing this type of work? Or how are they thinking about this in their context, which is very poor? Um, I use the term with my students, weird. Say, we're, we are weird. Uh, it's an acronym. We are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So we are all weird here. Most of the world is not. And so what does Christianity look like if you're not weird? If you don't operate with these assumptions and the luxuries that we have here, what does that look like? Or even what does it look like for other religions who espouse the same ideas? Judaism, Islam, and Hinduism, Buddhism. Um, I'm actually part of one of the largest organizations in Chicago that works with the urban poor is a Muslim organization. They've been there for 25 years, Inner City Muslim Action Network. And... I'm partnering with them in Wheaton City in Chicago and trying to discuss what does it mean for Christians and Muslims to work for the poor in the city? Um, because maybe there's something we can learn from what they've been doing for 25 years because we haven't been doing it for 25 years. At least this organization hasn't. And so what does it look like from other places to do it differently? Um, so for example, the Sikhs have, in every single temple, the Sikhs have what's called a langar. It is a free meal for anybody who goes to the temple. It's vegetarian, not because of their religious beliefs, but it's vegetarian because they want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. So if you don't eat pork because you're Muslim, you don't eat beef because you're Hindu, you don't eat this because you're just accessible. They have wait lists for volunteers. I know very few churches that have wait lists for volunteers for soup kitchens that are, in general. <laughs> most, again, most churches are like trying to be like, all right, again, we need volunteers. Again, we need volunteers. They have wait lists. The, the, the one that's in India, the, the largest one, the, it's, they're called Gujwaras, has a three-year wait list just to serve the poor. And I look at that and go, we should be doing <laughs> We're the ones called to serve the poor. <laughs> Why are we doing something like that? That would be awesome. And so what are the lessons that we can learn from bringing people to to the church, to Christ. I mean, this is part of their temple. And yeah, so I think maybe just kind of expanding our horizons and it, just, it helps us break down the binaries in which we live in, which is either political binary or racial binary or cultural binaries. And just how do other Christians or other people do it differently? Let's just, let me get out of myself because I'm limited. I don't know a lot. I can learn from other people. I, I'm not sure if that answered your question, <laughs> but it, that's how I would think about that question. Mm -hmm. I like in that Paul talks about being the fragrance of Christ. I like that term fragrance because you know, smell has an emotional component to it. It's not a intellectual component. And I, I like that, that idea that the power of Christ is something deeper than just intellectual knowledge my ability to spout off theological doctrines. 
it's something that you feel that imbues in you that you are drawn to because it's beautiful. Um, I tell people some of the best hospitality I've ever received was from Muslims when I lived in Jordan. Um, I mean, so a little bit about myself. I grew up in Saudi Arabia for 16 years. I'm Arab and Mexican. Um, a lot of my interaction community is a very communal-oriented society. And so moving here to the U.S. in 2001 was a bit of a shock because it's not that communally oriented. Um, this even happens sometimes with, with uh, at, at home. Uh, we'll like invite someone over and I'll say, oh, they should come at like two for dinner. It's like, why come at two? Dinner's at like seven. Why come at two? I'm like, well, they spend all day. Like, you should spend all day. Like, <laughs> that's the point. You just spend time with each other. But it's like, no, you come at like six and then leave at eight. In my mind, I'm like, that's, you barely get time to talk. <laughs> um, this happened when I was in the Netherlands studying with a Dutch theologian. In the Middle East, it's like we, we do over-hospitality. We just overdo it. So if someone offers you coffee, you're supposed to say no because that gives the person the opportunity to be more hospitable to then insist on more coffee. And like about the fourth round, you then get your coffee. The Dutch culture is very direct. Like, it's exactly what they mean. So he came, he's like, would you like coffee? I said, no, never asked again. Got no coffee, <laughs> it's zero coffee. <laughs> and, I was, and I was like, what happened? I talked to my friend, she goes, no, no, he's serious. Like, you just answer once. I go, oh. That's a big cultural misfire. <laughs> um, and so, like, the idea of hospitality, right? And that's, it's a, that's a cultural thing. Um, but, you know, in the Middle East, there are no lines. Everything's just chaos. It's really dangerous to drive because there are no lines on the road. Because once they go away, nobody repaints them because no one cares. Like, th that two-lane road would be four lanes, magically. It's really dangerous. It's not good. And there are churches in like Cairo that are working on like street signs to keep it, the streets safe for people to walk. Like that's what the church is doing. How do we make the sidewalks and the streets safe for pedestrians? Um, but thank God we don't have that problem. We have our other ones. Yeah. And again, this is why I say I think it's great to learn from places and people outside our context. So... We live, again, we are weird. We are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Christianity's not. Christianity's none of those things. It's all of those things and none of those things. Christianity critiques it and redeems it because God seeks to critique and redeem all things because all things are corrupted and all things need redemption, no matter what it is. So how as Christians do we submit ourselves to God's guidance of the Holy Spirit being led through the teachings of Scripture and be always being open to being revised with regards to whatever we think Scripture says. So if you talk to me, I'm 36. If you talk to me, that's why I'm a theologian. I don't do math. If you talk to me 16 years ago, I would have talked very differently. I was the kind of, there was a movement called like young, restless, and reformed. But I was young, angry, and like Calvinistic. Like I was like, if you don't believe the doctrines of Calvin, you're going to hell. I have since reformed from that, praise God, because Jesus is bigger than any single theologian. <laughs> right? But again, I had to be humbled. I had to be checked by Scripture. I had whatever in the things I think now may change because I'm being checked by Scripture. So I think it was always important to go back and say, I mean, even the things I presented here, these are good ideas. God knows the truth. 
Something I always appreciate when I read like Muslim theologians, I mean, they write prolific, prolifically. There's one guy, he died. So the Quran is about the size of the New Testament. This guy died two-thirds of the way on commenting on it and wrote 20 books. And he only went through two-thirds. But at the end of everything, like they write these whole things, they have all these arguments, ideas. At the very end, they say, but only God knows what is true. And I always thought that's a really interesting phrase. It's like, look, I just did all this work. I think I really, I think I got it. But there's a check. Only God knows what is true. I kind of wish more Christians, we put that at the end of our books too. I think that would be helpful. But I, I appreciate that. Uh, and so kind of whatever we think at the end is only God knows what is true. Uh, yeah. Okay. I wanted to thank you for bringing in the, the idea of different cultures and all of their validity. One of my frustrations with Christianity, I have felt, is that we are very, we view our God as monolinguistic mm. or monocultural. Mm. And the idea of a God who is multicultural is what seems to make sense to me. And um, we, we've talked about the divisions that we have amongst ourselves, and even in Christianity or you know, political, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that, that I think of most, and one of the things that I can't do, um, but Christ said, leave everything and follow me. And that message, I think, rings true with everything. Our beliefs, the, the way that we hang on to what we think we have to have, because if we give it away, then we're going to lose. And it becomes more us and less God and what we're supposed to do. So the, the idea of a multicultural God is beautiful to me, and I appreciate you bringing that, if I'm understanding what yes, you're saying. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and the challenges that we have, um, I think they're all solved fairly easily. And it's we, we leave ourselves, we give up what is ours, and we follow Christ, because otherwise we're putting ourselves in the way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that would solve a lot of <laughs> the divisions that we have. And I think that's what Christ asked us to do. And I do think part of it is learning from, learning from the other cultures. So what does it mean to go? So I, I teach a class on Christian thought. I require the students to do two church visits. One church has to be of a completely different liturgical tradition. So if you go to a very liturgical church, go to one that's like has no liturgy. just goes on for like five hours. Just go to that. And then you have to go to one that's a completely different racial makeup than the church that you're a part of. Because I want them to experience God in different communities. What does God look like in a low liturgy church? What does a God look like in a Cuban church? Or a Dominican or a church from the, like a Dominican or, Cuba, or Congolese. The Pope was just in the Congo and a million people attended mass on an airport with him. Um, what does that look like? And they were playing, like, you know, if you've ever been to Mass in the United States, it's, it's, there's a lot of liturgy, it smells and bells, and et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, I say smells and bells. <laughs> um, but this one, they were, like, playing the music in the airport, and it was like a party. I was like, man, I want to go to that Mass. That sounds awesome. That was, but it was, that was Mass. Like, Mass in the Congo 
is like energy and drums and beats and music because that's God for them. Um, but it's still mass. And I thought, okay, there's a lot like to learn from this. There's a lot to get me out of sight. Get me outside of myself to learn what God is doing so I can become a better Christian, so I can follow God more, so I can understand God more, I can love God better. Um, it's like taking, it's like we go through the world with a red filter, and now I'm going to add a blue and a green, and I guess that's the, the goal is to get to like a perfect color, but if you add too many, then it just becomes too opaque. Yeah, but you know what I'm getting at. Like, the more colors you see, <laughs> um, or it's like, if you ever, scuba, you, ever, you ever scuba dived? I don't know. Okay, if you scuba dive, you, the last color to go is blue. So that's why everything in the bottom looks blue. As you come up, you can see more of the light spectrum. So we're just hanging down in the blue area. We need to come up a little bit and encounter the diversity that exists in those kind of higher elevations, or not higher elevations, lower, I guess, lower depths, and see all the beautiful colors of the corals because that's where all the diversity is. And we appreciate God more. Um, that's why I like reading these older books, because it's people from different cultures I have access to just through a book, and I can learn from them. Um, so I, I teach right now a class on Christian mysticism, and just learning from the early church fathers and how they approached God is very challenging to me, because initially as a theologian, I put all of my stock into learning and the mind and theology and all of these mystics are essentially saying, yeah, that's like a baby step. You've made a baby step. Now you need to throw all of that out the window and follow us into the depths of God. It's super challenging. But it's really, it, it makes me appreciate the emotional aspects of Christianity more, which I was always suspicious of because I thought I knew everything. And I'm a, I know squat. <laughs> and they, they helped me. Like, they put a check on me. I'm like, man, these church fathers really get it. Like, they loved God so much. And there was this one woman. She got married and then convinced her husband to live in a celibate marriage. And then he became her disciple. And then she started a, a whole convent order. And I was like, man, that woman has some skills in, like, convincing people to do things. <laughs> like, she could convince people. <laughs> but it's because they were so enamored with her spiritual vigor. And I just thought, I have a little drop of that. And that, that's a whole aspect of Christianity that, that I need to learn from. Um, and that's that fragrance, that beauty part. I can't, I can't, it's like tasting something. So in, in Islam, they use, there's also Muslim mystics, they use the term tasting God. And I like that term taste because what I taste is different than what you taste. Like there's some people, unfortunately, that for them cilantro is like soap. It's genetic. I'm sorry. You know, it's, the, it's a result of the fall. Sorry. You know, <laughs> in heaven, we will all eat cilantro. It'll be wonderful. Um, but the taste, like, I can't taste cilantro like you do. I just can't do that. So when I encounter God, it's different than when you encounter God. It's a taste. It's a ineffable. It's something that is moving, but I can't describe it. Um, yeah. That was a long-winded response to what you said. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I wanted to remark, and I, I want to be cognizant of people's time and picking up kids and all that, and that included, but this is so, I, I would think I, 
it's so different than what I normally would expect to hear in a conversation about the fall, and delightfully <laughs> so. Because I think we hear, when we read the story of the fall, we kind of get bummed. <laughs> like, that we, oh shoot, sin's taken over, what are we going to do? Yeah, Jesus is coming, we know, but we're sinners, and, and it's just this kind of sad story. And what I feel like I've heard tonight is how we get to experience the be ongoing beauty of God that is still at work. Like, it's not all lost. The beauty that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, yeah, they've, they've changed. There's a, there's a, a difference, it's, and I love that refracted light image. But we get to be a part of uncovering it within ourselves and within our world uh, that which is still there, that which God created good. And it's just, I find it very uplifting. And like, you know, I want to learn more of these expressions and experiences of God from other cultures and other worldviews more, as opposed to feeling uh, defeated. Mm -hmm. That sometimes the conversations of sin can lead me to, and fall can lead me to feel that way. So just wanted to reflect that, that it just was like, it took me even this, group conversation to come around to that, to kind of understand the, all, all the aspects of what you shared and how that just does lead me to feel so encouraged. Thank you. Yeah, I, I definitely was intentional about taking a very different take on this narrative. Um, because we all have heard that, <laughs> oh, there's sin. Tough. <laughs> Life's going to be rough. <laughs> kind of narrative. And we've heard that. We know that. Um, there is something, so this is something I work on a lot, is um, how we form identities. And a lot of it, especially when you first form an identity, so many times when we're younger, is by creating what we call the other, the not me. Which is, that, that's an easy move to do. So we do it with race, we do it with religion, we do it with economics, whatever, however, whatever I am, I then easily pigeonhole somebody else as not me and therefore different or other. And that's, that's usually a move. You, I mean, we find it still now when we look at high schoolers. There's a lot. I mean, that's what clicks are. <laughs> it's just, you're not me. You're, you, you don't play football. You don't, you're not in choir. You're not in the cheerleading. You, you don't do Dungeons and Dragons. You don't, what, you know, whatever. You are not this because I am this and you're not that. And therefore you're different and I don't respect you. And I think with, with encountering more diversity and being challenged by that, that breaks that down. Um, so something I've done, I've, my wife and I have moved nine times in 13 years. Uh, we're just planning on staying here for a long time, so God willing. <clears throat> something I've done in many churches is um, I teach a class called Loving Your Muslim Neighbors a couple weeks, and then we partner with a local mosque and we read the Quran and the Bible together. And we have tea and cookies and we just spend time with each other because the best way to break down barriers is to meet an actual person. Um, and like you, I was young in, when I was in Saudi Arabia. I didn't appreciate it. I know, sorry. So, I mean, I've, I, like you, so I didn't, I didn't have the maturity to appreciate my time there. Maybe put it that way. Uh, I did have the opportunity later in life to go back and live in Jordan and was much more appreciative of that time but still missed out on those 16 years when I was in Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think meeting real people, having friendships, and having deep relationships, that's really the best way. 
Um, what's the best way to serve the poor? To actually know poor people and make friends with people who are actually poor or people who are actually disabled or people who are actually whatever group you're seeking to either be with or serve or you have an issue with. You know, I tell my students who are really conservative, go to a really progressive thing. My students who are really progressive, go to a really conservative thing. Like, just go meet people. <laughs> That's how you break down those barriers. Like, they're people. They have concerns. They eat and they sleep and they care about their families. And they, they, there are so many more things to break those things down. The problem is time. A lot of us don't have time. I mean, I'm super busy, but, you know. Some of you have more time. Praise God, you have more time. So that's your job. Go do that. <laughs> um, but I'm going to have to, I have to pick up my daughters. But let me pray for us uh, as we head out. And if you see me at any other point in time, feel free to pull me aside. Um, and I'd be happy to ask any questions about this or just religions in general. You know, my, my specialty is Islam. So if you have questions about that, that's also what I do. So let's, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you for the stories that they tell us. I thank you that even in the midst, the darkest period of our relationship with you, there was still grace. There was still love. There was still purpose. I thank you that you are constantly with us. Thank you and praise you that you are bringing all things into your kingdom. And we give you praise that you have brought us with you to be co-workers. Give us eyes to see where your spirit is moving. Soften our hearts to be receptive to your truth to perform our lives. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.